Hey everyone, welcome to the Significant Strike Podcast. I am your host, Soft Weekly. With me, as always, is my human human algorithm, our odds maker, Val Noir. Val, how you doing tonight, buddy? <laughs> I'm good. That's me, human algorithm. Well, I'm working on stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh... How did we do last week? It wasn't the best card ever, but uh, we didn't do too bad. It turned out being more exciting than I think anyone thought it would be. It was it was a yeah. fun card to watch. And how did we do? Yeah, it was. It ended. I mean, there was a bunch of good finishes. Um, our two main plays were Gamrot minus three point five for one and a half units, uh, minus one twenty five. So that cashed with a first minute submission. Just got on top, converted. Jeremy Stevens right away, great stuff, plus 1.2 units. Then Malcolm Gordon, our long shot underdog for half a unit, hit at plus 260, so that's plus 1.32 units. The only bet we lost was a .2 unit bet on Daniel Rodriguez by submission at plus 1,200. He got a knockout, no harm, no foul. So, yeah, we finished that card doing well, plus 2.32 units. And I, 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 I just want to say. that up around four units total. Yeah. I just want to say it was very funny because uh, on the show, on that show or the previous show, we were just mentioning how you hardly ever see a Kimura finish anymore, and then we got to see one. Yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah, <clears throat> there was some excellent stuff. Rodolfo Vieira showed off his jab. <clears throat> Billy Q and uh, Mowgli Benitez put on a, a striking war that Billy Q won pretty dominantly but it was still a fun battle uh so yeah it was, a, it was like a sleeper card yeah i was i was definitely pleasantly surprised i was not i i wasn't bored by the card but i wasn't super enthused but it was a lot funner than i thought it would be it really was yep but this weekend had on paper has all the makings of a great card yes it does so let's dive yeah. right where, in. Where do you want to start at? So we're starting with the the, the people's co-main event, Adrian Yanez versus Randy Costa. They're both young guys, both prospects. Um, Yanez is two and zero in the UFC. Costa's two and one in the UFC. Costa only has is only six and one overall. He only has seven fights. All of them finishing inside of seven and a half minutes. So if you bet under one and a half in all of his fights, they all have hit. Um, and Yanez has mostly finishes, uh, three decisions on his record for losses, two decision wins on his record, and then, uh, eight knockouts and two submissions. So this is, I mean, people have been looking forward to this one for a while. There's a lot of back and friendly back and forth between these two on Twitter and, uh, MMA Twitter is just eating it up. They're, they're both nice, funny guys. Uh, Adrian Yanez loves Dr. Pepper, and Randy Costa loves Reese's Cups, so they, they banter about that a lot. There's just a lot of fun stuff going on in the build-up, fun, wholesome stuff. Um, but this also has all the makings of a, of a banger. I mean, the UFC doesn't usually like to put two prospects together, but they did here, and I mean, I, I think I think it's a good call because this is this is great matchmaking. It's pretty much bulletproof. You know, uh, knock on wood. <laughs> <laughs> so Adrian Yanez, he loves to. What, his main thing 
at, initially is showing his opponents all kinds of looks by like just darting his hands around like he'll move his right hand up and down and he'll move both of his hands around you know with his palms out just like painting a picture with his hands just going in all directions without actually punching confuses opponents make them look up top before kicking in some cases um but his main thing is he's a great strike counter striker with knockout power lightning fast hand speed he's drawn comparisons to Jorge Masvidal he's a very bright prospect at 135 has a hell of a chin and great head movement to boot the only problem defensively is his guard is questionable and he can be hit by punches right down the middle all three of his losses like I said were by decision two of them uh by split decision the first one was in his second pro fight so we can safely ignore that from 2014 um but the two losses since then miles johns and domingo pilarte are both guys who have made it to the ufc in fact miles johns was supposed to fight last week he had a highlight reel knockout last year so these aren't these aren't bad losses by any means no no miles yeah, jo- so miles johns is he's uh he's formidable yeah um so, yeah, he's on a six-fight win streak right now with five knockouts, one decision. Fights out of a small gym in his hometown of Houston still. Uh, both of his UFC fights have been highlight reel knockouts, and he said they were a blessing for him in that the $50,000 bonuses enabled him to quit his day job and focus on MMA full-time. From the five months between his debut and sophomore effort, I saw a lot of improvement. Um, it'll be interesting to see. How much more improvement he makes in the four months or so since that fight? He's only 27, yeah. so he has, he has a lot of a lot of fighting ahead of him. Oh yeah, for sure. So Yana's on his stance is very front foot heavy, leaning his head forward to bait strikes so he can pull counter his opponents. He likes to probe his opponent's guard with his stiff jab. One example of a combo he likes building off of his jab is. He'll jab repeatedly and leave it hanging there in the opponent's face to blind them, get them to raise their guard with that repeated jab jab before coming up underneath the guard with an uppercut. Uh, just in general, he's very crafty in, in all kinds of things like that, setting up opponents to take big shots. Has good leg kicks, but they're not a major part of his game, but he'll throw them. He loves to pressure his opponents to the outer third of the cage after his initial low-volume, counter-striking, getting reads start. Uh, he's great at cutting the cage for such a young guy. I mean, Ringcraft is almost a dead art, but he's great at it. And there's even it's even more important in this smaller apex octagon that he'll be fighting Costa in. His lead hook is so sharp on the counters, maybe his best weapon. But he also has a vast array of other weapons, from head kicks to hook body hooks to the body, likely to works the body, to simple but effective straight punches. His punches are methodical, and he doesn't throw everything into it you know focusing on quality over of the punch over quantity of the power focusing on laser precision which he does have laser precision and not telegraphing punches you know not winding up he just comes straight down the middle clean around the outside of the guard it's always good when young guys have already learned not just wing punches because you, you can tell they have a bright future as a as a puncher yeah, and that that saves a lot of energy too. Young guys exactly. that are constantly swinging for the fences, they tend to gas themselves out. So knowing to uh, um, the Diaz brothers, 
that was one of their big things is, you know, like a 60, 60, 70% power punches, you know, so they didn't tire themselves out. Because if you miss on a few big punches, you used a lot of energy for nothing. Uh, yeah, so that we'll get to that when we get to Randy Costa because he does tend to wing punches and, and, and tire out because of it. But he's used to getting first-round knockouts, so it's not surprising. Um, but Adrian Yanez's UFC debut was a head kick knockout as the opponent tried to circle out when he was hurt. Uh, you know, he, he, the opponent ran to the right, Adrian uh, to his right. Adrian Yanez threw a left high kick, knocked him out cold. He's, so he's great at closing off opposing movement with strikes. Strings together combos really well once he starts getting going. He's willing to stay in the pocket and trade more and more as the fight progresses. Uh, he has such great reflexes that he can usually slip punches while countering and dishing out damage, even at that range. But he usually goes in and out, you know, in for a brief period of combo, a little pocket war, and then gets out when he's ready. He resets, but he likes to keep stepping back in there and make opponents uh, uncomfortable with his pressure. As far as grappling, I, I don't think it'll be a huge factor in this fight, but he is a BJJ black belt with two subs on his record. Uh, he has solid takedown offense, but Randy Costa, that shouldn't be a factor here because Randy Costa isn't a wrestler. He's not going to initiate wrestling unless it's a panic shot which I'll talk about the one time he shot a takedown in his career later. Um, Benyan, even if he does, Giannis should be able to stuff that and take advantage of it, I think, uh, because just because of his you know, improved uh, resume in that area. So Randy Costa started out at Lozon MMA. He's now moved to Sanford MMA. Um, but it was interesting to see in his 0-0 like, a, a fighter walking out with Joe Lozon next to him. But he was a, he was a hot prospect from the get-go. Uh, but he has a weak strength of schedule. If if you look at his uh, his schedule, just in his seven fights, first fight 0 and 4. I mean, first four fights 0 and 4, 0 and 0, 5 and 9, 0 and 1. All knockouts, none lasting longer than 71 seconds. But you can't blame a guy for having bad competition that quickly in his career. But the problem is he went to the UFC right away after that and fought Brandon Davis, who was only nine and six at the time. Um, I'm not sure if he's even still with UFC, Brandon Davis. No, yeah, he's not. He's, he's he was cut not long after that, so not a good look because he lost by rear naked choke in round two. Um, then he knocked out Boston Salmon, who is one of the worst fighters I've ever seen in the UFC. Who has a six and two record, and then Journey Newson, who. Uh, if he's not cut yet, he's on the verge of it because he's lost, uh, yeah, I mean, he's lost, like, all of his fights in the UFC. So, Randy Costa likes to switch stances a lot. He's good at retreating at angles and staying off the cage. He throws too many looping punches, though he has gotten a bit better since he switched to Sanford at throwing straighter punches. And he pushes a really high pace because he's so used to getting those early knockouts. But he's uh, extremely fast with his hands and kicks and dangerous with both. Those Lubric, he just winds up too much on punches, even with his speed. A good counter striker like Giannis should be able to, you know, punish him for that. Uh, he has good head, great head kicks. They get up there really quick. He uses the jab to eat up space and push the opponent back rather than do consistent damage. He utilizes a high guard for defense, but the body is open, even though his high guard is somewhat effective. Uh, all of his weapons are really designed to end fights early, and he throws them with 100% power. Uh, he he doesn't like to fight a battle of attrition of control of scoring points consistently. 
I will say he looked much calmer and more measured in his last fight, his only fight in 2020. But he ended it after 45 seconds, so it's hard to know what kind of pace and game plan he would have used as the fight went on. In that fight, he moved around a lot as they felt each other out, then did a left-straight head-kick combo, left-straight-slash-head-kick combo that put his opponent out like a light. In his first and only uh, fight that lasted past two and a half minutes in his career, the loss to Brandon Davis, he was visibly fatigued at the end of round one, and even though he was doing a lot of damage to his opponent, wobbling him multiple times, he himself also got wobbled, and his torrid pace led to him gassing. Uh, the more tired he got, the more he winged shots with no setup, just ducking his head and throwing bombs. And once he was gassed, he was submitted with ease from a rear naked choke, even though the choke had no hooks in. After he shot the only takedown of his career that I mentioned earlier, a panic shot when he was gassed, and, and it, was, it was a matter of seconds for Brandon Davis to lock him up and submit him with no hooks in. So not necessarily a good sign there, but the odds have got, they started at minus 185, which I thought would have been really great uh, play on Yanez, but they've gotten up to around 220, 240 even. So the play I like here, because these guys are such prolific finishers, and Randy Costa is such a kill or be killed type fighter, is the under. Um, under 1.5 is like minus 120, but under 2.5 is minus 175. I, I like to take the extra safety net of another full round with that because Costa's fought more patient lately and Yanez definitely fights more patient. So it could go a little longer, but I think this one, this is good value for the, this fight. I think it, it, it's very unlikely this fight goes past 12 and a half minutes. So that's the play. Um, under 2.5 at minus 175, you can get that on five dimes for one and a quarter units, 1.25 units. All right, I like that one. Um, we started kind of up the card. Are we going in order or? Yeah, yeah, just those those first uh, couple fights don't interest me. They're the first three fights, this is the fourth fight on the card. Right. The, those first three don't, don't, I don't see any value there. I think the, uh, really. the Belbita. I guess one thing I could say about Ciara Eusebanks is she's coming down from 135 and Elise Reed is in making her debut coming up from 115 to meet at 125 but the the line is so wide at like minus 350 that there's definitely no value there all right so the next fight is Ian Heinish versus Nasardini Imavov Imavov is making his third UFC fight uh Heinish is seventh he's three and three but those three losses came at the hands of Derek Brunson Omari Akhmedov and Kelvin Gastelum who are all, or were all, ranked fighters. Omari uh, left the UFC after his contract ended to test free agency. And they're all solid, extremely solid wrestlers, offensively and defensively. They were able to stuff a lot of Heinish's takedowns and, or, or take him down even. Um, and that could be reflected in his uh, statistics wrestling-wise, but I'll get to that in a minute. Starting with Imavov, He's a teammate of Cyril Gan, fights out of Paris, had far too much trouble, I think, with Jordan Williams, who is also on this card, coincidentally. He's a diabetic debutante, or he was a debutante, who fights at his natural weight because he can't cut weight due to uh, the diabetes. He weighed in at 183 pounds for that fight, and that's his natural weight. So, you know, I've had at least 15 pounds on him, and Williams gassed out early in the second round. So 
it was relatively easy for Imavov to win that fight, but he did drop the first round after getting caught and dropped briefly with a big right hand, and even with Williams so gassed that he could barely throw a punch, he wasn't able to finish him. Williams did show durability, but he was just so gassed that Imavov should have had his way with him, and he, he, he did win convincingly those last two rounds, but especially in that third round, it wasn't he should have been able to destroy a man who could barely stand at that point. Um, then, in his sophomore effort, he lost to Phil Hawes. Hawes is a good fighter. He just beat Kyle Dawkins, which was an impressive win. But it seems at first glance to be an even bigger leap. Well, it's a big leap from Williams to Hawes. And then it's an even bigger leap to go from losing to Hawes to fighting a fighter who has been ranked as high as number 13 in Ian Heinish. I mean, Heinish has fought... Brunson, who's number now is number five in the world, I think, and Gaslam, who was a title challenger at one point, of course. Um, Haas also got really gassed in round three of their fight and almost got finished, but Imavov showed extremely poor fight IQ in that fight. He would hurt Haas with punches and then start a clinch exchange on purpose when he knows that's how he been, had been getting beat. I mean, Haas had been controlling him on the cage and, and just grinding out a win for most of the fight. Imavov in that fight also grabbed the fence numerous times because he looked truly lost in the clinch, not knowing what to do to get out of it, and he couldn't even do the simplest things like digging for underhooks to get out of the clinch. Um, we might see that with some of these guys from from Paris, from France, because the MMA has not been legal for long there, so they probably have much more experience in other martial arts. Most of them come from a Muay Thai background uh, over there, I think. Yeah, their their so, grappling has a long way to come, especially in France right now. Yeah, I mean Cyril Gaon has surprisingly good jujitsu, but his wrestling is not great. Um, but he's also a, an athletic exception, as we discussed a couple of podcasts ago. Uh, in striking, Imavov is very light and bouncy on the balls of his feet, which uh, over time that takes a toll on his cardio. He didn't like his oppo- two opponents totally gassed out. He didn't totally gas out, but he wore fatigue. Um, yeah, a fair amount through three rounds. He too often just ducks his head and swings the overhand right for the bleachers, which can get him caught. But he does have power in that punch and his straight right when he lands them. He, one of his best features is working the body, especially with his left hook to right to the liver. Um, he has effective pull counters, but he is defensively lax. Uh, aside from his head movement, his his guard he he just leaves his hands away from his head down around his shoulders or chest doesn't even move to parry mostly avoids damage by just retreating or pulling his head out of the way so he he he's a decent striker but nothing special by any means um and and he's he's quite inexperienced i forgot to mention this earlier but he's he's nine and three uh and most and most of those came in in the, like really, really low, low. I mean, Europe has a lot of totally unknown promotions, but for for a guy who's fighting Ian Heinish, who Heinish isn't the best fighter ever, but he was ranked, and he's fought some of the, some of the best uh, middleweights in the world. It, it just it's such a big jump for such a young, inexperienced guy. He's 25 years old. It's yeah, it, it's a it's a big jump. Anyway, his his takedowns in terms of wrestling aren't act, aren't so great. He was one and eight against Jordan Williams again, even when Williams was gassed. He was just thoroughly out wrestled 
both in the clinch and with takedowns in top game by Phil Haas. Um, not much more to say there. He he really just looked lost. Even though he has Dagestani heritage, he he didn't he doesn't train in Dagestan, of course. So it's not the same. No. Yeah. So Ian Heinish, his only t- UFC losses, like I said, are to top 15 opponents. They were all by decision. Heinish has good wins over um, Cesar Ferreira, Shoeface, and a KO over Gerald Mearshart last year. He has switched to Sanford MMA more recently, which is the home, interestingly, of Phil Hawes, who had a tried-and-true game plan against Imavov. So as a teammate of his now, it's, you should think that Heinish will go into that fight trying to replicate that game plan, especially as he does have a wrestling background and wrestling pedigree. Uh, he has good cardio. I mean, Heinish is a physical beast. He's he's really he's really ripped and has, has one of those guys with a really broad back. He's of average height with a huge back. And he, so even with the high pace that he likes to push, just constantly going forward, he doesn't get gassed. Um, in fact, that high pace he pushes often gasses out his opponents instead, like Cesar Ferreira in their fight. He really beat up on Cesar Ferreira after he had gassed in, in that late in that third round and almost got the finish. Heinish will be shorter than Imavov, but is much broader in his torso. So I would wager that he is the stronger man, um, especially because he in wrestling exchanges, I think it'll be apparent because he has the technique that Imavov seems to lack somewhat. As far as striking, Heinish has also has big power in his overhand right. Sometimes also will duck his head and throw it, um, but a bit less than Imavov. He has powerful leg and body kicks. I like that he starts out early with leg kicks, both lead and rear leg kicks, inside and outside. Um, he needs to not drop his hands when he throws kicks is one thing he needs to work on. He does much better when he throws straight punches instead of looping ones. He started out against Cesar Ferreira, for example, throwing looping punches in the first round, and it was a pretty even round. Second round, a bit of the same, but then at the end of the second round, he caught him with a, a short left hook, just a check left hook, and knocked him down to steal that round when it was pretty even. And then in the third round, he kept coming right down the middle with straight punches. I really like that. He did so much damage, and, and I mean, it was on borderline a 10-8 round. He loves to push forward and be aggressive at all times. He does a lot of rapid fainting and moving his hands around, a bit like Yanez, like I mentioned earlier, but less often and at a faster pace. He often does this to get them to look high before he sets up low kicks, which is one thing I can appreciate. He has a strong, he has a college back wrestling background. He can explode very well into takedowns, but the stats aren't good, though I chalk it up to those three top-level wrestlers he faced, Gastelum, Akhmedov, and Brunson. He has 18% takedown offense and 60% takedown defense. He was taken down six times by Gastelum, which isn't a good sign, even though Gastelum is a top-level wrestler. But one thing I do like from seeing him be taken down is that he's almost always able to find his way to his feet again pretty quickly. He has not been controlled for like long stretches of time in the UFC, at least. Um... But he, has, he still has been taken down in every UFC fight, except for the one where he knocked out Gerald Mearshart, and that only lasted like a minute and a, and a couple seconds. So we'll see on that, but I really don't think Imavov is going to be able to implement a game plan like Gaslam and Brunson were able to. I think in striking, it's somewhat even, but Heinish 
has a, a, a decent advantage in just straight up wrestling on the ground, top game, but an even bigger advantage in the clinch. She's able to clinch and just do damage with short knees, you know, short uh, punches to the body, <clears throat> like his teammate or new, current teammate, new teammate Phil Haas did. Um, I like to switch to Sanford also. Uh, hey, he, I, I think it's going to make him better, get him to stop throwing those looping punches. I don't think Sanford is an elite gym, but I think it's a good gym. So I, I hope that he'll be coming out throwing straight punches right down the middle with that with solid power like he has. So on this fight, I, I do like Heinish. I, I, I think he takes it. Um, let's check out the value because it's been all over the place. It's, uh... Okay. Um, yeah, so he, he's... It, it fluctuates here. Most of the places it's around minus 150 is where you'll get it. Minus 155, as high as minus 165, but as low as minus 142 on sports bet. Sport bet. Um, so that's the play. Uh, I, I, I really like the value here. This is another one where I don't want to go all in two units or one and a half units. But I think it's a great buy low spot for Heinish coming off of three losses. Uh, or th three losses in one win, but against good competition. So, yeah, I'm going to like to buy, low, buy him low here. Put 1.2 units on that minus 142 line. All right. I like it. Yeah. Nice and simple. <clears throat> now, it shouldn't be like a banger of a fight or anything. I mean, it could actually turn out to be quite boring, but I, I just think Heinish is the better fighter. And, yeah, that, that tried-and-true game plan of Phil Hawes, same coaches, should be able to make it work. All right. Uh. Moving up the card just a little bit. We are not a, just re next fight, sorry. Uh, the, the new uh, prelim headliner. Uh, featured prelim, they say, because uh, Dawkins versus Abdurakhimov was postponed till next week. That's a good fight. Look out for it next week. One of the few good fights on next week's card, actually, but I digress. Uh, Punahele Soriano versus Brendan Allen. Uh, we saw and, and won on Brendan Allen um, back at UFC 261, uh, the Usman versus Masvidal card. He uh, heel hooked Carl Roberson in the first round. Carl Roberson. Not a kickbox, a kickboxer, not a good or great, not a great or even good or even okay wrestler, has been consistently dominated in wrestling. And Brendan Allen is a great wrestler, is great with the jujitsu, um, but in, and this is an interesting style matchup because Punahele Soriano is the opposite. I mean, he he's he has um, two rear naked chokes on his uh, resume, but that's very much a striker's submission. But it, he definitely does have decent takedown defense and decent, you know, versatility. But he is mainly a kickboxer. He has great power in his hands. He's only went to decision once, um, and that was in his contender series fight. But he still got the contract uh, because he had been on such a tear, going five and zero in LFA, Titan FC, and other organizations. So. It's just an interesting style matchup. I don't really have a side here. It's it's pretty even, and and the the lines reflect that on the books. At you know minus one ten, minus one fifteen. But Soriano has great power. I mean, he compares favorably to Sean Strickland, who KO'd Brendan Allen. 
But Bernard Allen came in with a bad game plan in that fight. He had been getting cocky, I think, from some success he had had on the feet. He tried to strike with Sean Strickland, who's a much better striker, a great boxer in his own right. And he actually headlines the main event next week against Uriah Hall. And he got knocked out in the second round. Um, if Brennan Allen comes in with that silly game plan, he's going to get knocked out, probably. He's okay with stand-up, but he can't stand up to Punahele, who's a real powerhouse. But if he can get to the feet, to the ground, I mean, it should be in his wheelhouse. Uh, so this should be a fun one. Classic wrestler, grappler versus striker matchup. Yeah, I think this is... Uh... <clears throat> Um, one of the one of the closer fights on the car is just as far as the odds go. Um, Allen is the odds-on favorite. Uh, no, he's not. Soriano it, it is. Yeah, just barely. It depends where you look. It goes back and forth. Right, but they're they're both around like a on BetMGM. They're both at minus one ten. So this is like as much of a coin flip as you can get here. Yep, and then that that, that is how I see it. I mean. I don't see either one having a huge weakness. Like Punahele will lose if it's on the ground, and Brendan Allen will win if it's lose if it's on the feet. It all depends. Punahele's takedown defense hasn't been tested against someone like Brendan Allen. Brendan Allen's striking has been tested by someone like Punahele and Sean Strickland, but he came in with a bad game plan and tried to strike with him instead of putting in his wheelhouse. So. We'll just have to see. It's just a fun one. I thought I should mention it. I so, agree. oh right, on to the main card. Which all right, this I just have to s- go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say the next one up here. I'm kind of excited for. Really, because uh, so this one it's interesting because it shouldn't be on the main card. Uh, Yanez versus Costa should be on the main card, and Soriano versus Allen should be on the main card. But this fight and the Darren Elkins, Derek Minner fight should not be on the main card. I, I don't know what the UFC is doing. Maybe just putting Yanez so far down so we watch the prelims. But they should be putting Yanez in a showcase spot after paying him $100,000 in bonuses in two fights. Um, this one, it, it, it's... I, I mean, it's a fight. <laughs> uh, Mickey Gall has some name power behind him because of... He came into the UFC as a prospect. He was 1-0 and when he started his career. He's notable because he choked out CM Punk and Sage Northcutt in back-to-back fights. But now he's on a streak where he's been trading wins and losses. Um, he also fought Mike Perry. Uh, he actually was able to hurt Mike Perry in the striking. but And that was like the first time, one of the first times we saw Mike Perry be weak to a striking from a weak, uh, lesser fight striker. But since then, he's been getting tuned up by everyone. So it's not the badge of honor it could have been in the past. Um, but and then when Perry put it, took it to the wrestling, he he just wrestled Gall to a decision easily. Gall gassed, not a good sign. But Jordan Williams, we got I I mentioned him earlier because he fought Imavov. This time he is going down a weight class after his debut at 185. He like I said he has diabetes, so he can't w- cut weight well. It will be interesting to see how he does cutting weight for the first time. Uh, since t- 2017 was the only other time he fought down at 170. And in that fight, he got knocked out by current UFC fighter Dwight Grant. But he does have power on the feet. He knocked out Gregory Rodriguez, uh, who is now a UFC fighter and was an LFA champion. He knocked him out in the Contender Series to get his contract. 
So he definitely has power, but he has a questionable gas tank. There may be value in Mickey Gall as an underdog, but I don't think it's wide enough, and he's not been trustworthy enough for me to put my money on it. But that is my lean. Um, why? Why do you say, did you say this is an interesting one um, for you? Just because I don't know how interesting it is, if that's the right word. I'm excited about it. I think it'll be fun for all the reasons you mentioned. Uh, Jordan Williams, uh, because he he normally can't cut the weight, and he's going to be cutting weight. And uh, Mickey Gall, just because uh, even in his loss to Mike Perry, you know, Mike Perry had a lot of hype on him at that time. And, uh, you know, he hung with, he got, he got wrestle-fucked in the end, but he hung with Mike Perry very well. Like you said, he stung him. Um, he had the loss to uh, Diego Sanchez. It was a TKO on punches, which is uh, – that was before Diego Sanchez went completely crazy. But uh, Diego Sanchez is an animal. Um, he had the loss to Randy Brown as well, I think it was. That was a decision. Uh, yeah, he, not a bad loss. Right. He, he beat, uh, like I said, he beat uh, Northcutt and Brooks and uh, Sullivan. And uh, I just think it's a it's an interesting matchup of middlings. I think it'll be... It'll be a good fight. Both these guys got a whole lot to prove, and they're right there in that like a like a seventeen to twenty-two ranking area. You know what I mean? Where a win would do a lot for either one of them. So I think it, it's interesting and it's pretty well matched. What is uh, Mickey Gall is what six and three, and Jordan Williams is a uh, nine and four. You know, I. I yeah, I have to say, I think you're overstating it a bit just as far as their rankings. I, I think, I mean, there are some good prospects at welterweight like Baeza, Hamzat. I, I, I think it's a little high to say 17 to 23, maybe like 25 to 30. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that's fair. All right. Um, so, yeah, lean on Mickey Gall, but nothing official. Uh, so on to the next. This is a, a, a solid women's MMA fight, it's somewhat similar to Yanez versus Costa in that they're putting two prospects, prospects who have been impressive, gotten finishes, which is even harder to come by in women's MMA, especially in the flyweight division. Um, Macy Barber versus Miranda Maverick. Barber is on a two-fight losing streak after going 8-0 to start her career. Um, it's a bit embarrassing for her because she had said that uh, she was going to break John Jones's record as the youngest UFC champion ever. I remember that. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's why she called herself the future. Still calls herself the future. Um, but that was what that's why she made that her nickname. And she she was under, I mean, she was doing great. She knocked out Jillian Robertson, JJ Aldrich, Hannah Cyphers, and then had uh, every other fight except for one that she won was a decision was a finish, one decision in uh, 2017. But yeah, she she was decisioned by Modafferi and Alexa Grasso. I'll get into that. Miranda Maverick, on the other hand, is a great Muay Thai prospect. She put so much of a beating on Liana Jojua in her debut last year that this fight was stopped between rounds. Jojua's face was all sorts of busted up. She has some good uh, submissions on her resume, arm bars and rear naked chokes. Um, and then last year she beat Jillian Robertson in a, a 30-27 decision. 
Um, so you can see, look at that common fight, Jillian Robertson, and say, oh, well, Macy Barber knocked her out, and uh, Miranda Maverick uh, didn't, decisioned her, but that's, you know, MMA math doesn't work like that. So let me dive into the to the specifics. Uh, so Miranda Maverick is actually going for her master's degree and training all at the same time. Um, she's an impressive, really impressive young lady. I mean, she just turned 24 and she's juggling all UFC career and a, and a burgeoning master's degree. So uh, that's just an interesting tidbit. She is a southpaw. She has a good lead hook, powerful leg kicks. She sets them up well, lands them in combination, especially to end combinations, which I, I've mentioned before I love. Throws them both with her lead and rear legs. She uses side kicks and round kicks to the body. Works the body with her boxing as well. She has, this is the most important thing, or one of the most important things for both of these women, is they have that striking intensity that I look for in women's mixed martial artists uh, that a lot of them lack, that some of them are just touching touching you. Maverick and Barber are really going after you to hurt you, throwing power and intensity and not being scared of being hit back. Um, when Maverick strings combinations together, they are vicious but also intelligent. When she sets her punches with feints, she's especially dangerous. As a southpaw, her favorite punch is perhaps the straight left, and she uses it smartly. Uh, although, Barber is also a southpaw, so this will be a close stance matchup. Um, should still be effective if she establishes it with her jab. Also, she'll establish that straight left and then, then turn it into a step-in elbow to change the timing and do a lot of slicing or smashing damage. She she destroyed Leona Jojua's nose in that fight against her with a step-in elbow. Uh, it, the nose just... You can see blood just flying out of it. It was a, one of the, a brutal one, a great, great strike by her. Um, and yeah, that's why the fight was stopped between rounds, or at least part of why. She, she measures range with her jab and sets up her combos with it. Usually she fights open stance matchups, like I said, but with this one being southpaw v. southpaw, the jab will be even more of a factor. Looking forward to seeing her use it. Um, she likes to go forward a lot and be very active with her striking offense. When she does land, she needs to practice on sliding out of range consistently, which she does it, but not all the time. Sometimes she'll stay in the pocket and get hit. Get can't be she's she'll be there to be countered, but when she does slide out, she's so effective, much harder to counter. She can get in and out and do more damage than her opponents because she's usually faster and a better striker. She needs to work on head movement when entering the pocket as well. Um, but against Jillian Robertson in her last fight, her exits from the pocket were better, and she followed him up by periods of lateral movement, circling, circling before darting in again. She showed good cardio in a 15-minute decision versus Robertson, where there was a solid mixture of grappling and striking. While her opponent did tire, she never seemed to do so. Um, I mean, she was a little tired, presumably, but nowhere near gassed. She can uh, take women down off of cop kicks, which could be a big factor here. Uh, powerful drive on her double leg. One takedown she did versus Jillian Robertson was particularly well done. She l led with the left hand like she was going to enter the pocket to strike like every other exchange. And then she level changed into it and Robertson went down like a sack of potatoes. No chance to defend the takedown. She needs to work on her own grappling defense, though, though Macy Barber isn't a grappler, so I don't expect that to be a factor here. She's, but she's much less effective on the bottom than top, but her top game is quite good. Um, 
and Jillian Robertson is a good good wrestler in her own right. So she out wrestled her, but not dominantly. But she did out wrestle her. Uh, Maverick out wrestled Jillian. That is so that's that's a pretty good thing. Um, but there did seem to be times when she was free when Robertson took her down, and she could have exploded up and out, but she took it too slow, going step by step to try and get out. Her takedown defense is spotty. It seems if she's all into the striking, she can be taken down. But if she's like aware that she could get taken down, she'll be able to defend, sprawl, and uh, get underhooks, get back up. But Macy Barber, on the other hand, is not a wrestler. She was taken down far too easily by Roxanne Modafieri in their fight and, and held down for long, long periods of time. She couldn't couldn't get back to her feet or even regain full guard when Roxy was in half guard. She looked lost even grabbing onto Roxy's head at one point, you know, grabbing a guillotine at one point when Roxy was in half guard just to have something to do, it seemed like, as Roxy was just hitting her in that first round with short strikes for over three minutes. Eventually, Barbara gave up mount and then her back, but Roxy got too over-aggressive and high up and she slipped off. So Macy ended up on top with 20 seconds left and couldn't really do anything with it, even get off strikes. In both the second and third rounds, Roxanne got on top, and both in the second and third round, she reversed Roxanne and got on top, but then both times again, she lost the position and, and herself was ended up on the bottom again. Um, that's kind of a thing with Roxanne. She's, she's a, a chaotic fighter. If you could describe her one way, it's chaotic. She just does a lot of movement and on top in grappling and... Uh, in striking she'll be doing a lot and that is what got her reversed I believe but Macy she 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 is capable enough on the ground but she's nowhere near the level of someone like Miranda Maverick who has a black belt has decent enough wrestling Um, and if Miranda Maverick looks to take this fight to the ground I think she'll have success in her first three fights in the UFC slash Dana White's contender series against lower competition she defended Every takedown attempted on her. Jillian Robertson uh, is a good wrestler, but didn't attempt a single takedown. In her last two fights, though, she was taken down four out of six times by Roxy and Alexa Grasso, who are top ten ranked fighters. And that's not it's not a good sign. I mean, Alexa Grasso is mostly a boxer and a pretty good one at that, and she still took her down with relative ease. And same with Roxy, who is a decent wrestler, but overall... If you're a prospect, you should be getting past Roxanne Modafferi. So it's really not a good sign for her if Miranda, Miranda Maverick tries to get this fight to the ground and uses her BJJ black belt. In striking, it's more even, though. Um, well, Macy Barber, she's another young prospect that just turned 23, I forgot to say, and she moved to Team Alpha Male recently, presumably to work on her wrestling in the wake of those two fights where she got taken down a lot. Um, we'll see how she does. She stands in a more boxing-like stance on the feet, which leaves her vulnerable to leg kicks. Roxy was able to tag Macy repeatedly in an, in an embarrassing performance for Macy's first loss. Like I said, she thought she'd break John Jones's record as the youngest champion, and she was a minus 850 favorite in that fight. And she got destroyed 30-27. to 27. Macy came out of the gate really hot, and the first time I saw her fight, I was like, wow, this chick is impressive. Like a striker, like you had mentioned, you know, just like a, she throws with bad intentions, and you don't see that a lot in women's MMA. 
I think Maverick is definitely the more highly credentialed fighter. Um, before she came to the UFC, she thought she fought in Invicta, and she had a very impressive record there. And I think Invicta is a when you're looking at women's talent, that's really the proving ground for the UFC is Invicta, in my opinion. Yeah, that, it definitely is. That's where most of the, the fighters come from these days, at least the American ones. Yeah, I mean, even some Brazilian ones are coming out of there instead of Combate, a jungle fight. But this will be a fun fight, for sure. Yeah, it should be. Um, the chaos and just sloppiness and unpredictability of Roxy in their fight was just too much for Macy and she couldn't defend herself and hit her back effectively whatsoever uh, it was just really weird to see a sloppy striker like Roxy hurt Macy on the feet and keep tagging her but that's, that is what Roxy does she did the same thing to Antonina Shevchenko um, and, and stopped her hype train She liked the, Roxy is the Derek Brunson or the, the Neil Magny of their divisions just if you can't get past them you're not going to be a top prospect they're not bad but they're never going to fight for a title you know exactly it's uh we use the word a lot but um it it has value that's why you use it she's a gatekeeper if you can't beat her you're not going to go to the upper levels of that weight class 100 percent um so but this wasn't the only fight where that showed macy's lackluster defensive capabilities she showed him against Grasso, too, but it was the most glaring because Roxy isn't a particularly good or powerful striker like Grasso is. Well, Grasso's not powerful, but she is good. Um, and this weakness is shown in her accuracy numbers, defensive accuracy numbers, which she does land a very good 52% of her strikes, her own strikes, but her opponents land 50% of their strikes, which is extremely high. You want that number to be at least 60 is a really, really low defensive number, especially in women's MMA. Um, But onto what she does well. She has a good jab and uses it well to set up the straight right. She does have knockout power, as Jillian Robertson, J.J. Aldrich, and Hannah Seifers all found out in her first three UFC fights. And she has good killer instincts when her opponents are hurt. I like the Jillian Robertson fight where Jillian was trying to grab her and get into the clinch. And uh, Macy Barber just pulled out the elbows and started slicing her up with short elbows and eventually got the finish that way. She, so she is an intense striker, and the striking is somewhat even in this matchup. But I, I do think that Maverick has a significant edge on the ground and at just in, at overall mixing together her striking and her grappling. And, and that's why I'm going with her in this fight. Um, the odds have been all over the place, so let's take a look at what they're at right now. Because originally it was like minus 175 for Miranda. It got down to minus 120 or so. Um, and now it's come back up to the minus 140 and 150 range. Yep, that's where I see it at. Yeah, so the best the best we have is minus 140 on Bavada. Um, I've mentioned in the past how I don't have Bavada, but... I do have a friend now that can uh, can place those bets for me, so I am going to be going ahead and calling out the Bovada bet as the official one, minus 140. But you can get minus 143 on bet online, minus 144 on FanDuel, 145 on DraftKings, um, 145 on my bookie. So it's not you know it's not that far off if you don't have Bovada, as some people don't. So. One, I'm placing one unit on Miranda Maverick. Uh, 
money line at, at minus 140. All right, and I just want to tell the people if you have Bet MGM, uh, they have uh, Maverick at minus 135 right now. Oh, are you on? Are you on best fight odds? Yeah, I got best fight odds up right now. Okay, yep. all right, I'm on fight odds. I so okay, we got all bases covered here. Right, and yeah, definitely don't have and, uh, MGM. Here, here's a little play. If it comes up as a prop bet, I wouldn't mind throwing a point two units on Maverick missing weight. I, I mean Barber. I'm sorry, Barber missing weight. Yeah, she has had that issue. Right, and she's, she's I mean, both of these girls are big flyweights. Yeah, and she's very big, and she always comes in at one twenty six and has trouble doing that. So. <laughs> um. Yeah, they. I mean, these, they're both young, and you know, as you get older, it gets a harder to cut weight, and b just when you're young, you're not full. They're not full grown yet. I mean, they're still gonna develop some muscle mass. So I would bet. I'd be very safe in betting that they will both move up to bantam weight in the future and just not be able to make flyweight anymore. I agree because they're 23 and 24, and both yeah. both are de- decently sized, but Maverick is five three. And Barber is 5'5", five, five, and she's a huge 5'5", five, five, 126 pounds. Yeah. I mean, she, she, has, she has really, really thick legs. I mean, you'll notice. And, uh, I mean, the Venom shorts will make it even more obvious on Saturday. But uh, moving on from that, um, uh, the Kyler Phillips, Raleigh, Holly, and Piva fight is an interesting one. I mean, they're both good fighters. Halim Paiva likes to brawl a lot. He's moving up from flyweight because Kyler Phillips' opponent, Rafael Asunsao, which would have been a big opponent, great opponent for Kyler Phillips, especially because he probably could have beaten him because Asunsao is very much past his prime. Um, but Paiva likes to brawl even though he has a black belt. Kyler Phillips is a, more, a calmer striker, if you will. Um, He's he's just a very well-rounded fighter overall. I don't. I'm not diving too deep into this fight, especially because the line is minus 270 in favor of Kyler. Um, maybe at minus 200 there would have been some value, but I think people are overlooking Paiva a bit just because he's a flyweight. He was a big flyweight, had trouble making that weight. I think a move up to bantamweight really suits him. Um, and, and he could what? go toe to toe with Kyler. He's also young, 25 years old. I'll be right there. Kyle Phillips is also so young, 26 years old, um, and and Paiva is five foot eight, the same height as Kyler Phillips. So uh, don't sleep on him. I mean, he could pull this out. I think Kyler Phillips is a better fighter, but not minus 270 better. But similarly, Holland Paiva has not been trustworthy in the past. He doesn't fight his best fight. He looks to brawl too much. Um, so yeah, uh, I'm laying off this one, but it is one of the funner ones on this card. Soft you there. All right. Uh, just put a thingy here, whatever. Um, so the co-main event, Aspen Ladd versus Macy Chesson. Um, Lad's been out for two years or so, but she is a top contender. Um, she was undefeated and beating some impressive competition. I mean, Eubanks, Landsberg, Evinger, uh, Eubanks again. And in her last fight, she beat Yana Kunitskaya 
after her 16-second loss to GDR, Jermaine Durandamy, in, uh, in yeah, her first loss ever back in 2019. She had really bad uh, leg issues. I think she blew out her ACL and MCL, and so she's been all out for two years. This is her return fight against a fighter who's similar to her, uh, Macy Chasson. Um, although Aspen Ladd is younger, she is more of a vet. Chasson is 7-1. and one. The lad is only nine and one, but she she's been in the UFC. Uh, oh, I was wrong. She hasn't been in the UFC that much longer. It just feels like it because Chessal was not on my radar. She's only been in the UFC one year longer. Um, they both came from Invicta. They both have decent striking and and also like to put their opponents in the clinch and do work there. Uh, Chessal, there might be value on her at Dog Money, especially with Aspen Lad coming off of. Such a, a, a long time off, a two-year layoff, just as we'll see in the main event with TJ Dillashaw. But she, I mean, Marion Renault, 44 years of age, Chassaw dropped around to her and overall won the fight but didn't look impressive in doing so. Um, I, I think the odds are about right. If if Aspen Ladd was not you know, coming off a two-year layoff and a bad injury, I think I would even take her at minus 175 which is like the best you can get her at it goes up to minus 200 um but i yeah i'm not gonna take uh chessaw coming back at plus 170 no so that's that fight and uh um on, on best fight odds the best you can get lad is uh 188 huh yeah yeah it's, it's all over the all right on to the main event. I mean, this is what we're all looking forward to. It's a great fight. It's the reason why I didn't call Yanez versus uh, cost the people's main event, but the people's co-main event, because this fight is just as great as chef's kiss, you know? Um, these guys used to train together. That's part of the intrigue. They have very similar styles as far as movement. I mean, they both, in a way, look like budget dominant cruises, the way they move. Um, TJ more it's more central to his game plan Corey Sanhagen can get by without movement but TJ that that movement when he developed that um under shoot I'm blanking on the name oh, what's his coach's name bang bang Ludwig yeah Dwayne, Dwayne bang yeah, Ludwig. Dwayne Ludwig yeah those snakes in the grass uh, I will all right, I gotta preface this I hate TJ Dillashaw I think he's a terrible person and not just because he popped for EPO he needed a teammate in the back of the head after a sparring session because he was angry about how the session went. Chris Holdsworth, tough winner, and he, he ended Chris Holdsworth's career because of that. He has, you know, concussion issues. He still trains a team alpha male, but Dillashaw ruined his competitive career, and that he's just a scummy person. But and wait, wait, while yeah. we're on that, um, and I don't like him because I've been a fan of alpha male for a long time, and. Uh, they won the belt there. He would have never won it without Alpha Male helping him out, and then him and Dwayne went off on their own. And I thought that was bullshit because Alpha Male had fought a long time to get a champion there, and then they jumped ship. And I thought that was bullshit. Yeah, and it's not just the way they, it's not just that they jumped ship. It's the way they did it. TJ was pretending to stay with the team. That is a whole thing where Cody Garbrandt and Uriah Faber talk about it on the Joe Rogan Experience that most MMA fans have probably seen. Um, but just the way they went about it was real scummy. TJ was getting paid to do this new gym, and 
he, he, he left, but he was pretending that he wasn't really leaving so he could have the benefits of both gyms. Um, and then there was a huge falling out, and that's why Cody Garbrandt and him had, had such a animosity when people thought they were still friends when they fought the first time. Yeah, he was trying to play this thing like, a, oh, I'm going to train part of the time here and part of the time at Alpha Male trying to make it seem like something. And, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, Cody Garbrandt's the, the kind of person that uh, he'll take a um, traitorousness or treasonousness or however you want to call it very seriously. And he, those two have bad, yeah. bad blood. Hello? Shit, I thought we were hooked up still. So. All right, there. I can hear you now. All right, go ahead. I got what I... Uh, yeah, I mean, Cody, he's he's all about the loyalty, and, and he, he's a typical, like, almost a typical frat bro, hanging with the boys, he always says. Um, but he is very loyal to Team Alpha Male um, and to Uriah, so he took that really personally when TJ left. Uh Anyway, T uh, TJ, also the main thing that people talk about is how he popped for EPO. EPO is a thing that Lance Armstrong used, that uh, cycler, a lot of cyclers used and died in their sleeps because of, because it basically stops your heart rate, slows your heart rate a lot, to, to, and increases your cardio, your output. And, it, I mean, we'll never know how long TJ was using it for, but... It's, it, he was, in the Dominic Cruz and other fights, able to bounce on the balls of his feet for five rounds and not get tired. So I suspect he was using it for longer than just to cut weight for the Cejudo fight. But, uh, I mean, we'll never know. Um, there's also a clip where Cody, in an interview, says, Yeah, TJ's the one that taught us all how to do that shit, referring to uh, using performance-enhancing drugs. So, and Cody, <laughs> bless his little heart, but he's... He's not the brightest bulb in the room, so he basically admitted that they were all doping. Um, though TJ's the only one to pop, definitely the only one to pop for something as serious as EPO. Yeah, which, like you said, that's that's a high-level performance-enhancing drug. It's not yeah. some kind of little thing. That's, like you said, Tour de France, next-level, high-performance yeah, shit. It's, it's like the worst of the worst. I mean, it can kill you, first of all, just straight-up kill you, because it'll literally stop your heart if your heart rate gets low enough. Um, by thickening your blood, or so I'm told. Uh, and, yeah, they cracked. That's why he had a two-year suspension. Most performance enhancers, you know, you get, like, six months to a year. TJ got two years. It was really serious. But, anyway, on to their actual actual fighting. Um, Corey Sandhagen's only lost once in the UFC, and that was to Aljamain three fights ago. His rise to the top of this stacked division has been rapid. In April of 2019, he was unranked. And now, um, not that far later, he's beaten three legends in Asunsao, Marias, and Edgar. And is on the verge of fighting for the belt. He's 29. He's in his prime, unlike TJ, who was 35. Uh, he grew up a big fan of Dom Cruz from the WBC days, he said himself. And his footwork uh, and his movement somewhat resemble that. They're not as constant with it. He'll Dom, Dom is constantly moving. Corey Sandhagen will sit on the ball on back on the flat of his feet for oh, periods of time. Um, I have to say that because of the way his ascension to the top of the division has been, there is a chance he is not nearly as good as we think he is. The four wins against contenders were all against much older guys, you know, legends out of their prime, Lineker, Asuncio, Marias, and Edgar. 
They all came at the perfect time for him to rise through the rankings. In some cases, he was the one to mark their drop off the cliff. In some cases, the drop came right afterwards, or maybe it happened beforehand and he was the one to expose it. Um, his only fight against a younger contender was Aljamain Sterling, who we got submitted by in in a minute, like a minute and 20 seconds. Yep. But to be fair, Aljo represents a horrible stylistic disadvantage for Corey with Aljamain's size, pressure, volume, and jiu-jitsu. Um, and Corey's weakness to grappling and just re- takedowns in general. So we are yet to see how he competes against top strikers that are not past their prime, which TJ is among those that has passed his prime. But the question is, how far past it is he? I mean, Frankie's 39. These other guys are older and um, haven't taken damage all longer. Marias was just fighting all the time, even though he was get, kept getting t- into wars and getting knocked out. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll have to see how far past T- it, TJ is. That's, that's the main question going into this fight, and it's why it's hard to pick a side and be really confident in it because we don't know how Dillashaw will look. Right. But we'll see. Now, I, I just want to say about that because you mentioned some guys, and I agree with you, Morales, Edgar, Lineker were all past their prime. But I think even in 2019, John Lineker threw a harder punch than TJ Dillashaw ever has. And they, they fought to a split decision in that fight. You know, this is going to be a striking a striking battle. And Lineker, I think, is probably, if you look over that list, that's the hardest puncher he's ever fought. And a quality a quality striker. You know, he's he's got a good stand-up game. Yeah. Lineker is, I mean, he... He had a lot less volume in that fight, but he won in some people's eyes because he threw some bombs that landed. So he is definitely a more powerful striker than TJ, but not a better striker than TJ. No, but he's I, he's that, a very crisp striker. Yes, he's quality yeah. for sure. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't mean to diss him. I, yeah, and I do I um, do agree with you. your assessment is that uh, TJ fights like Dominic Cruz in a lot of ways. That weird kind of a uh, circular footwork, the way he does it. Yeah, yeah. They both do, honestly, but but TJ a bit more so. Um, but Corey, he is very tall, long, and explosive. He's a prolific striker with a significant strike rate of over six per minute. He uses a lot of flashy kicks and has gotten knockouts with them. His last two wins were a spinning wheel kick and a flying knee um, against Marais and Edgar, respectively, which that flying knee is something he throws more often than most, and it's often timed very well as the opponent comes in. It just finally hit the mark versus Frankie Edgar. Um, he sets up all his wilder, flashier techniques, sets them up very well. The wheel kick versus Marias, for example, he set up by consistently throwing the jab and changing stance, as he always does. And when he wanted to do the spin for the, the wheel kick, he just had to feint the jab, and the start of the spin would look like he was just switching stances. Marias couldn't read it, couldn't get his hands up all the way, and got knocked down, and Sanhagen finished him off. Sanhagen has thrown even such rare kicks as uh, two-touch spinning back kick and cartwheel kicks, although with less success than than these other ones. Um, he switches stances a lot, which TJ also does. We could just see a 25-minute stance-switching battle between these men where they each try to get the advantage with footwork, but it never works, and they just keep switching instead of throwing punches, though I don't think it'll go that far. Though There will be a lot, a lot of stance-switching in this fight. Corey loves to switch the open stance matchup and round kick the body. Um, he's constantly advancing, mixes up his footwork on the advance to make it hard for the opponent to time counters. He switches between 
regular forward pace, just move marching forward, half steps, and hop steps like Dominic that cover more distance. Uh, all done very seamlessly. He uses so many feints when he gets close. He uses his reach well with an intelligent snappy jab and just pumps it out over and over and over again to control range and frame for straight rights. Uh, his, his, it just Again, everything comes off his jab. He sets all his kicks up, all his, his traps with his jab. He's constantly setting those traps throughout the fight. He also uses his lead hand, usually when orthodox, to dig hooks to the liver. Um, well, dig hooks to the body when orthodox to the liver. Long, skinny legs can be vulnerable to leg kicks uh, is one concern. Uh, it's always a concern with guys like him, guys like John Jones. He's, I mean... Corey Sandhagen is 5'11 at bantamweight. He, he's very skinny. But he doesn't neglect the body with boxing. Um, I kind of already said that. <laughs> Sorry. He's had trouble dealing with opponents consistently pressuring him in the past. You know, they, they are able to take away his kicks. But we can counter-strike, well, a few punches at a time. When he's being forced backwards consistently, it's harder for him since he likes to have space to move around. He needs to get better at not retreating in a straight line, di going diagonally and circling out. Corey's defense isn't the best. He's a, he too often is focused on offense and becomes quite counterable, not able to get his guard up in time. Most of his defense isn't blocking punches or even head movement. It's just his movement staying out of range, you know, like, like Dom, like TJ, like Wonderboy. Um, although Wonderboy has much better head movement. Corey Sandhagen overall is a great striker. His big, big weakness, though, is his takedown defense. He has uh, no no punches pulled, horrible takedown defense. An all-time poor takedown defense at only 30%. He defends 30% of takedowns against him. If, if you shoot 10 times in a fight, you'll probably land 7 of them is the idea. So he allows 2.4 takedowns per 15 minutes of cage time. That's a lot. I mean, it shows that it's not just, oh, 30%, he was taken down like four times. It, it, it There's a good amount of volume for that statistic. Despite being well-versed in jiu-jitsu, um, I mean, somewhat well-versed. He's not amazing or anything. He's a brown belt, but he has some jiu-jitsu. He has like an arm bar on his resume. At times, he look like, looks like he has no defensive wrestling whatsoever, similar to Kevin Holland, though maybe not quite as bad, but still, he needs... He seems to lack those fundamentals all too often. His repeated kicks can and have been used to take him down off of. Um, but he does have an advantage in his long legs and being able to stand back up. He's, he's good at getting back up when he is taken down. Um, but he hasn't fought a wrestler to the pedigree of uh, TJ Dillashaw yet. So that, that's that's the big question mark in this one or one of the, there's a lot of question marks in this fight it's a really interesting one that'll change the scope of the bantamweight division but that that's my biggest question as far as matchups yeah. style matchups yeah and it's worth noting that uh tj dillashaw came to uriah faber and alpha male's attention actually as a wrestler not as a striker yeah. So he yeah. he's a very good striker, so a lot of people don't know that. But he he's an accomplished wrestler as well. He's got a good grappling game. Yeah, he definitely. I mean, he he started out as a wrestler, of course, like all the alpha male guys, and then developed into the striker when he kind of bonded with uh, Dwayne Ludwig. And yeah, that's TJ's rise. He really would just be another team alpha male guy if not for Ludwig. 
um, which I don't like Ludwig either, but he, he's a great uh, great teacher, a great hitter. Yeah, he, he's a great striking coach. Whether you like him or not, you can't yeah. deny that. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, also, Corey is solid in scrambles, but isn't always successful. For example, he gave up his back to Aljo trying to get to his feet and got submitted from it right away. Um, he let Sun Sao end up in top in a scramble. Um, he averages one takedown per minute. No, that's not right. One takedown per 15 minutes in his own fights, but he doesn't have great top control to keep opponents there and do consistent damage. So his uh, his control time it doesn't doesn't look great. I'm actually gonna pull up the percent numbers from uh, at Numbers MMA on Twitter because he posts these great graphics and I forgot to write down. Okay, yeah. So uh, Corey Sandhagen only has, uh, despite getting about one takedown per 15 minutes, he only has a 19% control rate. It just pretty much just shows that he's not holding his opponents down for long when he gets them down. Right, he gets them down, but they pop right back up. Yeah. <clears throat> um, a lot of that control time was probably against uh, Iuri Alcantara in that, that crazy, crazy fight. Everyone should check that fight out if they haven't. It's a, one before he was a top contender. But yeah, and, and his uh, doesn't isn't able to really do consistent damage from the top. He actually has a really, according to uh, MMA by the numbers, he has really, really low... Uh, striking efficiency versus expectation, which is an advanced analytic he does. Um, and he told me that's because he his ground and clinch striking accuracy is so low, which is kind of a bizarre thing. It's like, how can your ground and clinch striking accuracy be, be low? It's the easiest, or it should be the easiest. But, yeah. Um, Dillashaw, like I said, he has two big... I said he has one big stylistic advantage, the wrestling. Another one is cardio, which isn't necessarily an advantage we don't know how much of his cardio was from epo we'll have to see but if he does have his old cardio he he will have probably an advantage against Corey. Corey does train at team elevation but he has never gone five rounds he's never been tested in a fight where he's you know had to grapple and and strike and defend takedowns for 25 hard minutes i don't He's rarely even gone 15 hard minutes because he gets so many knockouts. Right, and worth worth mentioning on that, too, is uh, uh, TJ's gym, the training lab, is also in Colorado. So even without the EPO, he's still training at elevation as well. Yeah, um, he, he is, and, and that's that's why they were training partners before. I mean, they, uh, they would go over, the training lab guys would go over and hang out with elevation. Corey Sandhagen was actually, according to Dillashaw, the main training partner for the cruise fights because of his movement. Um, and there, Dan Hooker, he said on, on a recent podcast episode that he saw Corey tuning up Dillashaw around that time. But that has to be taken with a grain of salt for a lot of reasons. It's sparring. Um, you, you can be put in, type of all, in all type of bad situations in sparring and try to work out of them. It's just nothing like a fight, you know. I mean, as far as just kickboxing, I would say Corey is better, so it would make sense for him to be beating Dillashaw. I mean, he had a kickboxing career, but when when in the full scope of MMA, at least in their prime, which Dillashaw was in his prime at that time when Hooker 
said he saw um, Corey beating him up. Uh, in his prime, Dillashaw was a much better mixed martial art artist to Corey, who was only had like two pro fights at that time. Apparently, I just wanted to address that. A lot of people, I don't think it's that important, but it's a narrative that's become popular on social media. Uh, <clears throat> and I, I, I understand why a lot of people, myself included, are rooting for for Sandhagen. Yeah, I am as well. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, mo- like most people are. But we, uh, uh, this is an anal- we we analyze the fights. I don't want to. Yeah, ch- we're we're not gonna let our hearts narratives. get in the way of our eyes and what we actually see. Yeah. Um, and before, as I, as before, uh, I mentioned his wrestling, which will be the X factor in this fight, I believe. One smaller thing to note as far as advantage is how well TJ does at getting around spinning attacks while moving forward. He doesn't just retreat to avoid them. He gets he steps inside of them so the foot can't hit him. Gets you know behind his opponent, gets the body lock, takes him down, or he's able to get in their faces and punch them as they come back around to face front before they're able to see him and defend themselves. Corey, as we know, loves his spinning kicks. Like I said, he knocked out Marlon Morais with one. Um, also worth mentioning, TJ has had some of the best performances in UFC history. Uh, particularly the Henan Barrow fights, who Barrow looked unbeatable, was top pound for pound for pound at the time, and he TJ beat him up for nine rounds in two stoppages, in, in two two different fights, uh, and as well as one of the biggest underdog wins ever. He was like plus six hundred at all. Yeah, I yeah. Just just had to mention that it's it's great performance. Um, under Dwayne Ludwig, TJ developed from a great wrestler to a great kickboxer as well, looking like he's been training in it all his life almost. His stance switches and rhythm and moving in and out of range in between long stretches of lateral movement have become a signature look for him inside the octagon. Like I said before about Co- Corey, his movement almost looked like it's derived from Dom Cruz, it's, it, which would make sense because Team Alpha Male was huge rivals with Dom Cruz. Yes, they were. You study your <laughs> opponents. Yeah. So it's it's not quite the same look as Dom. Like when moving backwards, for example, Dom covers distance with like stance switches mixed with short hops. Just kind of it's hard to describe, but you'll know when you see it. TJ doesn't do the same thing. Um, TJ also just sometimes seems like he's moving just for the sake of it, which is what my one main criticism of his footwork. He'll do a do a bunch of whole he will do a whole bunch of cool movement on the outside. But then instead of using that to set up, you know, a, a body kick or something, he'll just step into the pocket and brawl. So I'm like, it's like, why were you doing all that stuff outside? You're just wasting energy and then brawling, which that's his problem is he wants to brawl, it feels like. He seems like he's trying to hold himself back from stepping into the pocket and getting into a war like his former teammate Cody Garbin is known for doing. Um, because And he should be holding himself back because he's much better intelligent fighting on the outside um but he had some successful success with it notably versus Hennen Barrow but Hennen Barrow wasn't the greatest brawler um it's, it's just a different sort of matchup like in the Cruz fight when he tried to he got tired of chasing Cruz which you shouldn't be chasing Cruz at first make him come to you he would get he would just try to chase him and then step in the pocket and brawl and Cruz would just touch him and move out of the way which is a big reason he lost. He, he couldn't stick to the game plan for those 25 minutes. There were times when he showed brilliant flashes versus Cruz, flashes of what Henry Cejudo and Cody Garbrandt showed us, making Cruz come to him, uh, kicking the leg as he's exiting range. Um, 
and just just countering him instead of instead of chasing him around the octagon. And, but Dillashaw got frustrated, I guess, and couldn't stick to that. Like he just wants to brawl. He he wants to step into the pocket and go to war. Anyway, yeah, that's that's one of his biggest flaws or was in his prime. We'll see how he is now. Um, he uses open stance matchups to set up body kicks, just like Corey. Which is one reason I think they might there'll be a lot of stance switching back and forth as they try to get the get one up each other. Um, TJ also likes his low kicks, both inside and outside. I think that could be great for him in this fight against uh, Corey, who who has those skinny twigged legs, as I mentioned. He sets his low kicks up well with both lateral movement and feints. He employs a very wide variety of punches, from shifting overhands to Superman punches. Throws them all very well in rhythm with his expert footwork and head movement it's hard to predict because they're always coming from different angles too he works the body well with punches he uses body work to start combos in his boxing and then and then goes up top as the opponent's hands drop in general he puts the combinations together as good as anyone in mixed martial arts ever uh the two then head kick is like his signature combo and that head kick gets up there quickly but sometimes he spams it too much and opponents will see it coming. That happened in the Asunsao 1 fight and the Cruz fight. But his head kick has done a lot of damage for him. It was it was so effective against Henan Barrao. He turns uh, straights into jabs and vice versa. Right? When he switches stances mid-punch, like he'll be southpaw, throw a straight left from a bladed stance. Then again, but from almost a square stance, then shifts, and the straight left becomes a jab, throws it a few more times, bumps it out, then comes over the top with a powerful right hand. This covers a huge amount of distance and sets him up to land from a position that the opponent isn't ready for. His jab and generates power stepping through. Uh, we know that from how guys like Poirier and Jan use their switches, switch hitting. His jab isn't the most used weapon, but when he employs it in instances like that, it is sharp, and he usually uses it multiple times interrupted, just jab, 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 when he decides to use it. Uh, so wrestling, the X factor. His movement is key for his takedowns. He uses shifts to set them up frequently, making it seem like a usual shifting striking attack that I, like I just discussed, but then instead changing levels. Um, he likes to shoot from southpaw more like most of the time his takedowns will be from southpaw which is the case for for a lot of switch uh switch hitting guys he'll also jab and change levels as the opponent tries to counter he'll shoot reactive takedowns that he doesn't force the opponent to initiate as well just a lot of strong ways to get the fight to the ground uh especially against a striker and poor defensive wrestler like sandhagen he has strong top control and ground and pound he's not much of a guard passer as just a, a you know top game wrestler, he prefers to stay in one position and just do damage from there. He isn't a huge submission threat, but he has attempted some in the past. He has a rear naked choke in his pro career, and he got a guillotine on, on his tough season in one of those exhibitions. He's got the a uh, he's got a net crank on here somewhere too, doesn't he? Uh, oh yeah, uh, against Von Lee. Yep, yeah, in 2012, uh, he got a net crank in the first round. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay, yeah, I missed that. Oh, uh, no, yeah. The, the, sorry, that that's that. Uh, it's listed on topology. I don't know where you're looking, but here it's listed as a rear naked choke. Oh, I'm looking yeah, at sure dog. Maybe looking it wasn't that crank. Right. I don't know what, what side are you on. Sure dog. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's why it's different. 
Anyway, um, he he's a great scrambler, uh, as you would expect from such a credentialed wrestler. His best wrestling performance was against Lineker, who, like we discussed before, lot coincidentally lost a split decision to Sandhagen two years ago. Lineker is a shorter, thicker bantamweight, having fought more at flyweight, but he does have better defensive wrestling and jiu-jitsu than Sandhagen, so, uh, I mean, being able to take him down consistently is a good sign uh, as far as just showing off uh, TJ's wrestling credentials in mixed martial arts specifically. So, uh, now comes the time to look at the odds, which it is all over the place. The lines have been moving up and down. Um, they range from plus 145 to plus 165 for TJ, um, minus 200 to minus 185 for Sandhagen. They moved first. They they moved up uh, to from plus 150 to minus plus 170. Then back down. Then back up a little bit. So, TJ Dillashaw, after despite coming off a two-year layoff, he does have the tools to beat Sandhagen because of the stylistic advantage in terms of wrestling. It's very possible Sandhagen knocks him out like everyone else. It's possible TJ comes in washed, but it's also possible he comes in in great shape, comes in with a, a really smart game plan, um, has Sandhagen's timing down from their time training together, and, and w would be able to take him down. And, and hold him down for significant periods of this fight. So I do think there's value here at the plus money with TJ Dillashaw, plus 165, which you can get on Bet Online. And uh, what I'd like to say about that is if you look across all the books, the way this fight opened up was uh, TJ at like uh, plus 135 and Sanhagen at like a plus 164, somewhere around there, right? And the mon so the money's moved. Uh, the way to make Sanhagen more of the favorite. But all the books saw it as not this big a gap. So you're getting right to the right to the limit for me, but I think there's some value in Dillashaw here. I, I, I'm just a little scared because uh, we're talking about two and a half years off after getting yeah. busted for PEDs. So we don't know what we're going to see. That's the weird thing. Exactly. And that, that's why... Um, I'm not going a full unit on this. I'm only going a half of a unit at, at plus 165. I like it. I like it. That um, was... Uh, yeah. Well, we'll talk about it in a second, but yeah, I like it. Uh, like I said, I am, a, I am a little scared because it's been two and a half years and it's his first fight back without doping, so we don't know what we're going to get, but... Exactly. Yeah. I, I totally understand. Yeah, I, I mean that that was a big part of what I thought, and that's definitely why I can't can't in good conscience put a full unit on this. And hey, I mean, if Dillashaw wins, sure, cool, I make money. If Sandhagen wins, I lose money, but I'll be happy anyway because I like Sandhagen. Yeah, I like yeah, I like him too. He's a if you've seen his interviews, he's a cool guy, and he has flat. He, I mean. Spinning wheel kick knockout and a flying knee knockout. That, that's a fun And fighter. he tries the cartwheel kick. I respect anybody that does yeah. that. He's no Brian, he's and, no Brian Ebersol, but I respect anyone that tries it. 
And and the Yuri Alcantara fight, I mean, his arm popped, not like fully broken or, or anything, but his arm popped from an arm bar, and he was like, no, I'm not going out like this. He can't, And he, he fought out of it, being just tough and uh, flexible, and uh, came back and with a hurt arm beat Alcantara in the second round. Yep. Um, that's, that's one of the most chaotic, funnest fights you'll ever see. But that was before he was really known, before his rise to the top. So uh, everyone should check that out. Yeah, all right then. That's the whole card, and uh, we'll just uh, mention the intro or this segment, but I think we've already given away who our walking the dog is going to be. Who you got? Yeah, so I've got TJ Dillashaw walking that dog, walking that dog straight to the shelter and leaving him there because I hate him. <laughs> uh, right. And, <laughs> no, yeah, and maybe this says something about our honesty because neither of us like this guy. And there's a lot of reasons to think that maybe he won't bounce back. But at these numbers, I think he is the, he's the dog to bet on this week. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. All right, now it's time for the, and hopefully we'll have our theme music for this soon. Someone is working on it for us, but the Don't Be a Pussy Parlay. Yeah, why don't you go first this time? All right, uh, I always take my dog, which maybe isn't the smartest thing to do when you're doing a parlay, yeah, I'm not, but I'm, I'm going to do it. Putting, yeah, I'm going to take Dillashaw. Though I never do. I'm going to take Dillashaw. I'm going to take... Uh, Jordan Williams, I'm going to take Brendan Allen, I'm going to take Yanez, and I'm going to take a fight we did not talk about, the very first fight on the card, I'm going to take Diana Belbita. Interesting, yeah we didn't, I, so I would have gone deeper into that fight because I might have liked Balbitza at plus 160 where she started, but it became even odds very quickly, and right. there's no value the, there. In my yeah, opinion. there's there's really no value. My only concern on that fight, because I had some notes on this one, is that she's going down a weight class. So yeah. that's my only concern. Otherwise, I think I think it, if they were fighting at 125 instead of 115, it, there'd be no doubt to it, but... She's on yeah. my she's yeah. on my bet there, for sure. And I don't I don't think Hannah Goldie is is very good. And she, if Belbitsa was like a more polished and credentialed fighter, I I would love to fade Hannah Goldie here. And if she was plus odds, I would love again love to fade her. But I understand her for the parlay. All right, that did you do all, your five? Yep. I forget. All right, so I'm going with. Whew, I'm going with uh, Miranda Maverick. Um, Ian Heinish. Yanez Costa does not go the distance. Belbita Goldie does go the distance. And shoot. And Lad versus. No. And, and Sarge Eubanks. Sijara Eubanks. That's my five. I like it that, uh, how we do it a little different. I always throw my dog in there, and you always throw some parlays in there, or uh, some uh, prop bets into your parlay. You know, we give people a little range or whatever. Yeah, yeah I like it. That, that's a fun segment. I can't wait till we get to get our uh, music for it. All right. Um, we're excited about this card, aren't we, Val? Yeah, very much so. I mean, there's 
Uh, let me just count all the fights that I am excited for. Main event, check. Co-main event, somewhat. Uh, Phillips versus Paiva, yeah. Elkins versus Minner, not really. Barber versus Maverick, yeah. Gall versus Williams, eh. Punahele versus Brendan Allen, yeah. Heinrich versus Dimavov, a bit. Yana versus Costa, very much. Arce versus UL, decent. And the two first two fights, the women's MMA fights, no. So, uh, but that's a good amount of fights, more than most cards that I'm looking forward yep. to. All right, tell them where our YouTube channel is. Uh, yeah, I mean, so just check us out at Significant Strike on YouTube. Check us out on Twitter at Sig Strike Pod. Um, check out our podcast network at Spofi HQ, S P O F I H Q. Um, and yeah, you'll, I mean, if you are listening to this, you know where to find us uh, already on Apple or, or uh, Spotify or all the rest, any other podcast listener, podcatcher you have. All right, cool. Um, let me just go over the bets again real quick. Yep. Just to sum them up. So we have uh, one and a quarter units on under 2.5 for Yanez and Randy Costa at minus 175 on five dimes. We have 1.2 on Ian Heinish. Money line at uh, minus 150. Where did we get that? I forget where I got that. Uh, no, wait. Shoot. I, I totally. F- one sec. I wrote the odds down. It, it wasn't even 150. That's what it was before. Or was it 150? Shit. I'll have to listen back for that. We have Ian Heinish money line for 1.2 units. I'll just say for now. Um, we have Miranda Maverick. Money line for one unit at minus 135. Nope. Sorry. At minus 140. Shoot. Uh, can you scrub that all out and I'll start over? Yeah, hold on. Let me flag it. Hold on. Because I, I, I have different odds written down in different yeah. places on because I had the odds. For all right. When times. I say go, hit it. Okay. Go. All right. So we have... Uh, uh, one and a quarter units on the under 2.5 for Giannis versus Costa. We have 1.2 units on Ian Heinish money line, one unit on Miranda Maverick money line, and half a unit on TJ Dillashaw money line. Uh, just to sum up, so 